Jesus is equal with God in his works, his love, and his knowledge. Jesus is equal to God in his power and sovereignty. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you open to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, we're going to pick up the narrative today in verse 17, verse 17 of John 5. In the first four chapters of John, as we've been in the last few months, we've seen Jesus performing miracles, and he's interacted mostly with individuals, mostly with individual people, many of them who express faith in him. Beginning in chapter 5, though, we come to a major shift. John's now documenting the growing opposition to Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders. And chapter 5 and chapter 6 are some of the most dense, cream brulee dense theology in the book of John. It really, Jesus is saying who he is, and they also record, amazingly enough, the reasons why the Jewish religious leaders and ultimately the entire nation reject their Messiah, despite the evidence of prophecy and the evidence of supernatural miracles. So Jesus was a popular person until he cleansed the temple and threw out the money changers and disrupted their money-making scheme uh, through religious worship profiteering. And that is what kicked off the initial stage of opposition by the Jewish religious leaders. And it intensified when Jesus healed a paralytic man on the Sabbath, which we looked about last week. If you notice in all four Gospels, Jesus had a habit of healing people on the Sabbath on purpose, right? He demonstrated his divine power over disease, demons, death, sickness, etc. But he was also demonstrating his authority over the Sabbath, over Shabbat, over all man-made religious rules about the Sabbath. He was saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I do not submit to man-made rules about the Sabbath. Now, as a result of these Sabbath healings, the Jewish religious leaders had their binoculars on him, and they were watching him extremely closely. And they confronted him about it, about violating the Sabbath. And Jesus does not seek to avoid conflict. He steps right into it and intensifies it. He essentially says, I work all the time, even on the Sabbath, because my Father in heaven works all the time, even on the Sabbath. He's clearly claiming to be God, which he does multiple times. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus doesn't claim to be God. He claims to be God multiple times and multiple occasions, and we're going to take a look at them specifically in the next couple of weeks. John 5, 17 to 47, the rest of this chapter, Jesus claims to be God, equal with God in many, many ways, and we're going to see those illustrated today. Now, many individuals and many organizations today claim to follow Jesus, but they refuse to acknowledge that he is God, deity come in the flesh. 
They call him a great spiritual teacher, a moral leader, but they refuse to acknowledge his lordship. They call him only a man. Jesus did not give us that option. He claimed to be God, and he did things that only God could do. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, hundreds of them. He performed literally hundreds of publicly witnessed miracles. What is utterly interesting to me, if you wanted to discredit Jesus' claim to be deity, you would deny his miracles. And yet, even his opposition, the Jewish religious leaders, never denied the miracles because they were way too many and they were publicly witnessed. They were eyewitnesses by the hundreds who've seen him do these miracles. So they didn't deny him. The eyewitness evidence was overwhelming. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said about himself would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, really summarized this. He said, there's only three options in your opinion about Jesus Christ. Only three. Either he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is who he claimed to be, Lord. Let's pick up the narrative in John 5, verse 17. Jesus is responding to the, the Jewish religious leaders who are attacking him for healing a paralytic on the Sabbath day. And he says, quote, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Unquote. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but it was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I'm going to give you a number of principles this morning, and they're all going to start with Jesus is equal with God, and then I'll give you the way he's equal with God. So you can just write down, Jesus is equal with God, and the first one is in his nature. Jesus is equal with God in his nature. That's our first principle. Now, God gave the Sabbath to Israel as a gift. It was a day of rest, recreation, restoration. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But over the centuries, the Jewish religious leaders have turned the Sabbath into a prison of man-made restrictions, rules, rituals, and regulations. I don't know when you grew up as a kid. I grew up, and all we knew about Sundays, it was a day you can't do stuff. Can't go fishing, can't go hunting. That was really heartbreak. Can't go swimming. Uh, we were not allowed to read the newspaper or the cartoons until the afternoon after lunch, after church. Then you could open and read the cartoons. I mean, there was just a lot of things you could not do on the Sabbath, right? That was part of the, the holiness of that day. When we went to church, no one talked. It was like a morgue in there. I mean, very quiet. You know, if the Spirit was there, we sure didn't know about Him. <laughs> so it was a very, you know, very uh, restrictive Sabbath experience. Maybe some of you grew up in that kind of a, a, a situation with, um, with your Sunday experience. So when the Jews attacked Jesus for working on the Sabbath, Jesus said simply, I'm working because my father is working. 
God works continuously. If God doesn't sustain the universe moment by moment, guess what? It ceases to exist, and you cease to exist well. Jesus basically said, God's working continuously, and you don't attack him for working continuously. My Father is God, and he works continuously, and I work just like he works, because I have his exact nature. Now, when Jesus used the term, my Father, the Jewish religious leaders knew precisely what he meant. Matter of fact, John records over 95 instances where Jesus uses the term Father to describe God. Now, fathers and sons have the same identity, right? They share the same DNA, the same essence, the same character, sometimes even the same looks. In that era, particularly, the son was an extension of the father. They identified with their father. They acted like their father. They often had the same trade as their father. They often lived in an extension of the house of their father. They built an addition onto the house. So this identification with fathers and sons or mothers and daughters was significant. Jesus is saying, I have the exact same nature as God himself, and therefore I act exactly like my father acts, including working on the Sabbath. Hebrews 1.1, you can just write this down, Hebrews 1 says, quote, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Messiah, Christ, he is the radiance of his glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his, the Father's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he, Christ, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. So Jesus is the full revelation of God and shares God's glory, God's nature, God's power, God's throne. Jesus is God on display. God made visible. He is the exact essence of God. There is no difference between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe. He's an inheritor of everything as well. It says the world. It's interesting, the, the, the word world in your translation means ages. It doesn't just mean the planet Earth. It means space, time, matter, energy, everything that was created. He owns, created, sustains, and will inherit. Revelation says Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega the beginning of all things, and the end of all things. He's also the redeemer of sinners who place their trust in his payment for their sins. So the Jews rightly believed, they rightly believed that any human being who claimed to be equal with God was blasphemy. That was correct. Blasphemy means to show contempt or to show irreverence toward God. It means to curse, to revile, despise, to treat God casually, and lightly. That's what blasphemy means. Now, claiming to be equal with God, if a human being claims to be equal with God, they're doing two things. They're bringing God down from what he is to a lower level, and they're elevating themselves up from where they are to a higher level. That's blasphemy. That reduces God to human standards. And the penalty for blasphemy in Israel was death. 
Now, the Jewish leaders believed that Christ's claim to be equal with God was impossible. Because equality with God implies polytheism. If you're equal with God, it means there must be at least two gods. Right? Equal with God means there must be two gods. And the Jewish religion taught one God, monotheism. The Shema of Israel, the basic creed of Jewish monotheism, what Jesus said is the greatest commandment is found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Right? So the Jewish rightly rejected polytheism, since Yahweh throughout the Old Testament had repeatedly told them, there is only one God, and I am He. I am unique. There is no other gods. So the Jewish religious leadership, they interpreted Christ's claim as rebellious blasphemy and arrogant independence from the one true God, because there was only one God. So how can you be equal with God since you're only a man? Jesus responds to that, verse 19. Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Here's our second principle. Jesus is equal with God in his works, his love, and his knowledge. Second principle, Jesus is equal with God in his works, his love, and his knowledge. So Jesus answers their charge that you're acting independently of God. He says that the Son can do nothing unless he sees the Father doing it first. In other words, while on earth, Jesus, the Son of God, was dependent on his Father, submissive to his Father, and fathers followed his Father's direction. The Messiah's relationship with the Heavenly Father was predicted in the Old Testament. And Messiah is speaking about this relationship in Psalm 40. So Messiah is speaking here in Psalm 40, verse 7. Then I, Messiah, said, quote, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. This is Messiah saying, God, I delight to do your will. Your law is in my heart. Now, Philippians 2 tells us that while on earth, Jesus temporarily laid aside the independent exercise of some of his divine attributes. That's why he became hungry. He could have solved that problem in the wilderness, but he chose not to. So on earth, Jesus, the Son, submitted to the Father's authority, obeyed him, did all his, and he did his will perfectly and did his will eagerly. No human being, at least none of us in this room, I'm joking, can do God's will perfectly. No human can honestly say, quote, I do what God does, and that's all I do. I do nothing else except what God is doing. That's what Jesus is claiming. Only the perfect God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, can do God's will without fault or failure. Jesus said something that none of us can put on our tombstone. I wish we could. John 8, 29. If you want something to leave your heart with conviction, John 8, 29 will bring you conviction. Jesus says, quote, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, that's the standard of perfection that Jesus the Son does because he's fully God and we're not. Jesus is basically answering the Pharisees and he says, look, it's impossible for the Son to act independently of the Father. The Son is in perfect union with the Father. The Son works exactly as the Father works in order to accomplish God's perfect will. Have you ever thought about the Trinity? At 2 a.m. when you can't sleep, that's something that will occupy your attention. <laughs> it will not help you go back to sleep. It will definitely get your brain going. The Trinity are three persons, one essence. We call it triune God. Tri-unity. Tri-unity. Those three persons, there is no space or time between them. None. There's space and time between us, right? There's no space and time between the members of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one essence, and they move in perfect accord with each other in purpose, in plan, in work, in will, in thought, in action. Jesus often referred to this union, speaking of his Father, John 10.30, another one for your cross-reference. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, he's talking to the disciples, and they're worried about him going back. And Philip says, show us the Father, and it's good enough for us. And Jesus said to John 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? That's a picture of oneness and unity for us. So Christ the Son's earthly submission to his Father's will was not based on differences in power. It was based on love. It was a joyful submission because Jesus said, the Father loves the Son. In other words, our unity is based on love. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things. The relationship between the Father and Son is completely transparent and intimacy. Have you ever thought about the fact that there may be secrets between you and the people you love? I'm not asking you to talk about them. There are no secrets between the Trinity. It is complete and total transparency. As a matter of fact, the communion between the members of the Trinity is infinite. It is unfathomable by our finite human minds. Now, the Jews, they viewed God as all-powerful and distant, certainly not intimate. Jesus says, my Father, who I share his nature and his work and his will and his power and his love and his knowledge, I am intimate with him because I have the same exact essence he does. And he said, my Father is working and I am working because I'm exactly like him. And the works that Jesus had been doing demonstrate the fact that God was his Father. Well, what's he done? Well, so far he's turned water into wine. He's healed a royal official's son. He's healed a paralytic. And those are just the first three signs that John recorded. We know that when he was in Jerusalem, he did multiple healings. He's also um, demonstrated power over nature. So he has not just talked the talk. He's demonstrated his deity through his works. George MacDonald points out that what the Father does slowly, the Son does instantly. And he gives some examples. Think about it. The Father turns rainfall into grape juice through a grapevine. 
and it takes months and months and months and months of spring and summer before you get grape juice from water. Jesus turned water into wine in an instant, right? The Father heals broken bodies over time through the power of nature. Many of us hear a testament to that, that we would like that to speed up. Thank you. Jesus healed a paralytic with a word, right? God uses nature to multiply and mature wheat seeds into crops. Jesus prayed over five loaves and two fish and multiplied it in his hands and fed 20,000 people one afternoon. As a matter of fact, Jesus told the religious leaders, my father is going to give me even greater works than the one you have seen so far. And you say, what greater works did the father give Jesus to perform other than the ones he'd already been doing? Well, verse 21 speaks of resurrection. Verse 22 speaks of judgment. Let's take a look at that. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Here's our third principle. Jesus is equal to God in his power and sovereignty. Jesus is equal to God in his power and sovereignty. Now, the ultimate power in the universe is the power to give life. Only God has the power of life and death. What did, what did we learn in, in, at the beginning of the creation? Genesis 2.7. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, right? Acts 17.25 says, He, meaning God, gives to all people life and breath and all things. So the source of everything, the source of life, comes from God himself. Now, there's a law called the law of biogenesis. The law of biogenesis says life cannot come from non-life. Life must come and always comes from existing life. Living things cannot emerge from non-living matter. Back in the day before Louis Pasteur, they believed that spontaneous generation occurred because what you would do is you'd throw a pile of straw somewhere in a corner and lo and behold, three, to three weeks later, there were all kinds of mice in there. So they thought, well, maybe, this, maybe there's just spontaneous generation. Maybe the mice just kind of showed up from the straw. You know, not life comes from non-life. Well, Louis Pasteur uh, did quite a number of experiments in 1861 and demonstrated that spontaneous generation is impossible. Life comes from life, and Jesus, as God, is the source of life. And we know he demonstrated power over life and death because he raised people from the dead. While Jesus was on earth in his three-year-plus ministry, he raised three people from the dead. He raised the son of the widow at Nain. He raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. And he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, raising someone from the dead, resuscitating them from the dead, is reversing the curse of sin which produces death. Only God has the power to reverse the curse of sin that produces death. Now, all three of them were raised back to the exact same life they left. They had their same body, their they, they same life, same existence, and all of them subsequently died a second time. At the grave of Lazarus, Jesus said something with two different frameworks of application. He says, I am, name of God, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the source of life. 
I control both life and death, not only physical life, but also spiritual life. And moments later, he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who had been dead for four days got up, walked out of the grave with grave clothes wrapped around him. Now, the Jews believed that the Old Testament taught that only God could raise the dead. And that is true. Ezekiel 37.13, God promised in Ezekiel 37.13, Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. So God is saying resurrection power, power over life and death, belongs to me alone, and you will know that Messiah is God because he raises people from the dead. Now, many Jews did believe in Christ after he raised Lazarus from the dead. As a matter of fact, it got so powerful that the Jewish religious leaders planned to kill Lazarus because he was such a powerful witness for Christ because he was raised from the dead. After resurrection, the second work that the Father gave the Son to do was executive judgment. Take a look in verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Father does not honor the Son who sent him. Here's the principle. Jesus is equal to God in his authority, and therefore must be honored as God is honored. Let me say that again. Jesus is equal to God in his authority, and therefore must be honored as God is honored. Now, the Jews believed that God was the only judge of the earth. And they were correct in that judgment. Where they were wrong is their willful refusal to acknowledge that Jesus is God and therefore has the right to judge. Jesus said, all judgment's been given to the Son by the Father. And Jesus, the Savior of those who trust in his payment for the forgiveness of their sins, that same Savior will be the judge of those who refuse to trust in his payment for their sins. Jesus is the one and only God-man, and therefore is uniquely qualified to be both the Savior and the judge. As God, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for human sin. He also knows everything about everyone. So God's judgment through the Son will be perfectly just because you can't fool someone who already knows everything. In this life, you have seen miscarriages of justice, have you not? You read the paper and you go, I can't believe that they came down with that verdict and that punishment for that crime. That is a miscarriage of justice. Well, that will never occur when Jesus Christ judges at the end because he knows everything. And you can't fool him, right? His judgment is perfectly just and fair. Acts 17.30, Paul is speaking in the Areopagus. He's on Mars Hill, and he's talking to this Greek audience, and he's highlighting the fact that Jesus is going to be the judge, and he says, quote, in verse 30, Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day when he, Christ, will judge the world in righteousness through, I mean, he, the Father, will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Christ the Son, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So there's already a pre-appointed day for divine judgment when every human being will stand before Christ as judge. 
And Paul says, we know that God has validated him as judge because he demonstrated it by raising him from the dead. Right? Since God the Father and God the Son are the same, you cannot honor the Father and not honor the Son. What did Jesus say? No one comes to the Father except through me, right? If you reject his Son, God the Father will reject you. God the Father has no solution for human sin other than the sacrificial substitutionary death of his Son on the sinner's behalf when they exercise faith in that salvation. You know, when you're in a courtroom, you honor the judge in that courtroom. As a matter of fact, you refer the judge generally as your honor. Now, if you call an earthly judge your honor, how much more honor is due the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the judge of everything and everyone in heaven and on earth. I am amazed at people's mouth. I'm amazed at what falls out of their mouth. I'm amazed what they actually write down and post that falls out of their mouth. As a matter of fact, I'm reasonably convinced that when God judges everybody at the end, he has a tape of everything that ever fell out of your mouth and every thought you ever thought and every motive you ever thought. And I'm reasonably convinced there's going to be a whole lot of social media that's going to be brought forward as evidence in the last judgment. People will be condemned by their own words and their own deeds. We'll get to that in a second. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Here's the principle. Jesus alone has the power to give eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. Jesus alone has the power to give eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. You're going to notice this phrase, truly, truly, in the old KJV, it says verily, verily. It means the same thing. It means, it means pay attention. What I've got to say here is real important. John uses that phrase 25 times in, in the gospel. There are only two categories of people, only two, those who are dead and those who are alive. That's the great dividing line. That's true not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. Either you are spiritually dead or you are spiritually alive. Now, the, the lost sinner is dead in trespasses and sins. That means they are a spiritual corpse. Someone who is dead is unable to respond to any stimuli, right? You can talk to them, you can poke them. A corpse will not respond because it's dead. A spiritually dead person is completely unable to respond to any spiritual stimulation from God. They have no ability to respond to God because they are dependent on God to give them new life and new birth. The lost sinner cannot save themselves, right? So all life, whether it's biological and visible, physical life here on earth, or spiritual and invisible life, comes from the same source, God himself. He is the author of life. Sinners are raised from spiritual death to eternal life. What did Jesus say? If you hear my words, now hearing is not just 
sound hitting your eardrums. It's, I've heard, and I'm going to obey what I've heard. I'm going to follow what I've heard. So you hear God's word, the Bible, and you respond to it by trusting in Christ's payments for the penalty of sin. Eternal life, he says, we'll have eternal life, means that you will never die spiritually again. You will never come into judgment. You will never come into God's judgment. Romans 8, 1 is the most comforting verse in the Bible for me. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John talks about the same thing in John 3.18. Right after John 3.16, this is John 3.18, two verses later. He who believes in him, in Christ, is not judged. So Jesus is sovereign over salvation, and Christ's words here are both an invitation and a command to hear and respond by faith. Those who hear God's word and believe that he is God's Messiah sent to earth to redeem sinners will not experience judgment, right? The moment they believe, they move from spiritual death, separation from God, to spiritual life, union with God through Christ. They will never die again, never be separated from God again. Now, it's eternal life. It's not temporary life. You didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. Because it's based on what Christ did, not what you did. Make sense? Eternal life with the right relationship with God, John 17, Jesus said, and this is eternal life that what? They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is about a relationship, a right, loving, intimate, sanctified, justified relationship with God and Jesus Christ. It's your present possession right now. It's here right now, and it's going to last forever. It's not based on feelings, it's based on facts. A man once came up to D.L. Moody, famous evangelist, and he said, I'm worried because I don't feel saved. And Moody asked him, well, was Noah safe in the ark? Man replied, well, certainly he was safe in the ark. Moody replied, well, what made him safe, his feelings or the ark? See, our salvation doesn't rest on our feelings, but on Christ, our Savior, who was the ark for the sinner. When we're in him... We're secure and protected from the storm of judgments that's coming on the world. Now, Jesus says, the hour now is when the dead will hear my voice and live. He's talking about Lazarus. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead shortly. But when he also said the hour is coming in the future, he's talking about, he's referring to the cross, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and the new spiritual birth was just infinitely greater than physical resurrection. By the way, if someone raised somebody physically from the dead here today, we would be astonished. And that people are getting spiritually resurrected from the dead this morning, which is far greater because it's eternal and they will never die again, and we don't see the miracle. Ask God to open your eyes to the miracle of spiritual birth, of spiritual resurrection that people who are lost and dead in trespasses and sins can now have a right relationship with God and spend eternity with heaven. That is miraculous, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's invited us and commanded us to be a part of it. Verse 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself, 
and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Here's our principle. Jesus is equal with God in his eternal self-existence. Jesus is equal with God in his eternal self-existence. This is one of the most powerful passages on something that is known as the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. It's from the Latin, and it means from self or from himself. God and God alone is completely self-existence. He eternally exists by his own power and his own will. God is the supreme being, and he has existence in himself. When Moses asked God what his name was, what did God say? I am who I am. I am is the eternal self-existent being who always existed and always will exist. Where past, present, and future don't exist. It is eternally present, right? God is not a self-caused being. God did not create himself. God is an uncaused being. He has no beginning and he will have no end. And I can see your wheels just falling out of your brain going, oh man. God is the cause behind everything that exists. John 1.3, we've talked about this several weeks ago. John 1.3 says, All things came into being through him, Christ, and apart from him, Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Psalm 92, Psalm 90 verse 2. Moses is speaking. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Colossians 1.17, speaking of Christ. Colossians 1.17, he, Christ, is before all things, before all things, and in him all, all things hold together. So Jesus, who's the creator of everything, is uncreated. You have life, but your life is dependent life. My life is dependent life. Your and my life is derived. It is dependent on the will of God for it to continue, right? Our life is very dependent. You don't have water for 72 hours, you're going to heaven. You're not here, right? It doesn't take very long, right? Everything in the creation is dependent on the creator for their source, their existence, their continuous. God's life, he has life in himself. He is not derived from anything else. He is completely independent. He is not dependent on anything or anyone. And the life that God gave to Jesus, what it says here, does not refer to this aseity. God did not create Jesus or give him life. Jesus is God, and he eternally exists with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus gave, God gave Jesus the gift of eternal life to give to you and I and anyone who believes. So God appointed Jesus as the one who would give eternal life to all those who exercise faith in him. Because the Son of God is the incarnation, the in flesh, the in carcass, the demonstration, the revelation of God on earth. It's the eternal plan for Jesus, the one and only God-man, to be the mediator, right? To be the go-between between God and man. Jesus said that in, in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, comes to, mediates, gets to the Father 
except through me. So he's the mediator. And God the Son has authority to execute judgment. You know, one of Jesus' favorite terms in Scripture is called himself Son of Man. He called himself Son of Man over and over and over. And I had a guy tell me, I told you he wasn't God. He calls himself Son of Man. Well, he obviously hadn't done his homework. Daniel 7 describes one like the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. Jesus called himself Son of Man routinely because of the divine messianic title. It refers to God in human flesh. See, Jesus is uniquely qualified to judge humans because he's fully God and he knows everything. And a human being, he knows by experience what it's like to be fully human. One of the things that should give us great comfort, when you bring God your mess, and you all have mess, right? You all have problems. He knows because he's been in human flesh. He still is in flesh in heaven. It's his resurrection body, right? It's the one you're going to get, but he knows what it's like. Hebrews says, you know, you don't have a high priest, a go-between, a mediator between you and God who doesn't understand your troubles, your trials, your brokenness because he walked the earth for three and a half years and suffered hunger and cold and thirst and sorrow. He knows because he's been there, done that, right? Verse 28, do not marvel at this. He's talking to the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Here's the principle. Jesus will resurrect and judge everyone for all eternity. Jesus will resurrect and judge everyone for all eternity. Now, when Jesus says, don't be amazed, don't marvel, he's telling the Jewish religious leaders, hang on to your hat. You ain't seen nothing yet, right? Universal judgment is coming, and Jesus will be the divine judge. And there are two resurrections he's talking about, two resurrections that everyone will face, one or the other. The first is going to be a resurrection of life. Believers are going to be raised from the dead when Christ comes to rapture his church. 1 Thessalonians 4, you can cross-check that, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. When Christ comes, he will not land on the earth Believers will be resurrected to meet him in the air, and we go with the Lord at that point in time. And that resurrection is not for condemnation. That's a resurrection for rewards. We all know that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, and that will not be for condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will stand before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, for rewards, for work that we have done. Some people think, well, it doesn't matter what I do down here as long as I'm saved. It really does matter. God cares what you do. God wants to work through us to accomplish his divine purposes, and it will be rewarded in heaven. Do your homework, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. The second judgment, however, is going to be a judgment, a resurrection of judgment. And unbelievers won't be raised until the end of the millennium, the end of the thousand-year reign. Tribulations occurred seven years. Christ sets up his earthly kingdom on earth for a thousand years. We have the millennium kingdom. When the millennium's over, Satan is loose. We have one final battle, and then we have 
the last judgment, the final judgment. And it's only for the lost who have rejected Christ's offer of salvation. So when you read Revelation 20, it should break your heart because it's heartbreaking, but it doesn't apply to you who are in Christ. It applies only to those who have rejected God's gracious offer of salvation. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, it's the voice of Christ that will raise the dead. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, um, if, God, if Jesus had not said Lazarus before he said come forth, every dead person who's ever died would have risen from the grave and come out of the graves at that point. You had to be very specific because it says, the dead will hear the voice of Christ and those who hear will live, right? Which means they're going to live forever. No one gets annihilated. Everyone lives forever. It's just a question of two destinies or two destinations, eternal life or eternal condemnation. The only difference is location and state. Am I going to live forever in heaven united with Christ, or am I going to live forever in hell separated from God? So when, when we say eternal life and eternal punishment, you know what's really profound about that? They're eternal. Which means it never ends. For those in heaven, that's the best news ever. It never ends. If you're in hell, it's the worst news ever. It never ends. Those who have done good deeds will spend eternity with God in heaven. Now, we know that good deeds don't save. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. However, good deeds demonstrate that your faith in Christ is real. If you say, I made a profession of Christ when I was eight years old, and there's been no fruit in your life for 40 years, I don't think there's any spiritual life because the tree produces fruit, right? Evil deeds reveal that you did not trust Christ to forgive your sins. If someone lives like the devil their whole life, their father is probably the devil because they do the deeds of their father. That's what Jesus said, right? If you do evil deeds habitually and routinely, it is evidence that you have rejected Christ's sacrifice for your sins. If you do good deeds, deeds that honor God and lift him up, it's evidence, it's a test of faith that demonstrates that you have placed your faith in Christ and therefore your sins are forgiven. Speaking of faith and actions, Jesus says something in Matthew. He said, quote, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? What he's saying is profoundly simple and profoundly convicting. Your habitual behaviors reveal what you really believe. By your fruits you will know them. So when Jesus talks about good deeds and bad deeds, those are simply evidences of what is going on in the heart. 
We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. But every person who has rejected Christ, it says they will be judged on the basis of their deeds, which obviously reflect the fact that they have rejected Christ. Okay, this has been swimming in molasses mentally. I get it. Let me review this passage and the next couple um, reveal what Christ had to say about himself. Christ is absolutely claiming to be God. Deity, the Son of God, same nature, same essence. Next couple of weeks, we will look at how is it in light of the evidence, overwhelming evidence, that the Jewish religious leaders could choose to disbelieve and kill the Son of God. Let's review these principles. Number one, Jesus is equal with God in his nature, his essence. Two, Jesus is equal with God in his works, his love, and his knowledge. Number three, Jesus is equal with God in his power and sovereignty. Number four, Jesus is equal with God in his authority and therefore must be honored as God is honored. Number five, Jesus alone has the power to give eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. Jesus is equal with God in his eternal self-existence, which means he exists before space and time because he created space and time. And lastly, Jesus will resurrect and judge everyone for all eternity. Now, you know, what are you going to do with what you know? I challenge you to something we talked about years ago at this church. Some of you have a list called your one. It's the person you're praying for. I want you to bring that before the Lord this week. Lift them up. Ask God to open a door to have a conversation with that one. I believe that in God's perfect time, He wants that one that you have to be saved. And he wants you to be the one to do that. But you wait on the Holy Spirit to show you. And that only occurs when we bring them before the Lord in prayer. Because Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost, but he's also going to be the judge of those who reject his free offer of salvation, which is extremely sobering and extremely truthful. Thank you for your attention. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.